Good morning, everyone, and welcome to St. Luke's Sunday Forum. This is the first in a series of three forums about wonder, the theme of wonder, when the transcendent breaks into the everyday, or as our guest today says, when the divine is apparent through the mundane. Um, let me say that we have three wonderful guests, uh, Dr. Gregory Ellison today, Lois Reitzis next Sunday, and Barbara Brown-Taylor the following Sunday. And all of them are going to be talking with us about the power of having room in your life and in your mind for wonder and the energy of wonder. So before we get into it all, let me now welcome a professor at Emory University, a professor of pastoral care, author of important books, and a wonderful scholar of Howard Thurman about whom we're going to talk today, Dr. Gregory Ellison II. Welcome, Greg. Hey, Ed. Uh, such a, a, a gift to be with you once again. Thank Glad you. to be here. Um, Greg is no doubt referring to the fact that he and I met in a very auspicious way. We were out of outdoor, outside of Kalamazoo, Michigan at the Fetzer Institute yeah. talking about being spiritual leaders in the 21st century. And he and I had a wonderfully full of wonder, literally conversation and walk around the lake. And uh, we became we became aware that we are brothers of the soul during that walk and shared much, much deep things. And then when I moved back to Atlanta um, and found out about this book, I'm gonna hold it up. The name of it is Anchored in the Current, Discovering Howard Thurman as Educator, Activist, Guide, and Prophet by our guest today. And this has become, my friends, one of the most important books in my library and is my Advent study book because hmm. it's got so much power in it. And we're going to give you a taste of that in the next 40 minutes. Um, so, Greg, let's get let's get to it. Let's do I, it. Man. Let's do it. Oh, oh, and, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, Greg and I already recorded this once. <laughs> Take <And> two. It, <laughs> it was a mind-blowingly wonderful forum conversation. And in the ether of Zoom, it got lost. Yeah. And so we're having to redo this on a Friday afternoon. God bless Greg for doing this at the end of a very long, challenging, exhilarating, exhausting week. And uh, we're not going to try to redo what we did. We're going into deeper, newer territory. So let's get at it. Yeah. So Ed, we're talking about wonder. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it is so mysterious, but maybe providential that that first one was not played. And so, you know, this is the wonder of God that is bringing is us the, together. Again. Not about it. <laughs> it is the wonder of God. So let's dive into Howard Thurman, get a taste for Howard Thurman, then talk about you and Howard Thurman, then yeah. talk about this book, talk about your life, pack it all in in 45 minutes. But we have to, now, I, I do want to say, thank God I inherited, when I came to St. Luke's as interim rector, 
that we had James Cone's Crossing the Lynching Tree as the study book for Lent. And then in keeping with that, we chose Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited for our Lenten study book last Lent. So the people of St. Luke's, and, and, and we had wonderful guests to come in and talk a little bit about Howard Thurman, but you can't, you can't plumb the depths of Howard Thurman in three or four meetings or reading one book. So let's get into him. What is, what is his role in your life? What's the, what's the power? What's the nourishment? What's the meaning of Howard Thurman? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so Thurman for me has been uh, not only a, a theoretical and theological interlocutor, but he has been an ancestral friend. Ah. Um, and, you know, Ed, I'm not sure if you know this, but I have, um, you know, some of the rare recordings of Thurman's devotions and sermons. Ooh, wow. Candler has an archive of Thurman, and I started to digitize those maybe about eight to 10 years ago. And in that process, you know, I downloaded several of them on my computer. And so I have maybe six or seven dozen of Thurman's uh, devotions and sermons from the Howard Thurman Educational Trust that uh, accompany me in, uh, in challenging times in my life. I think of um, the moment when I was applying for my job at, at Candler. I, I listened to um, Thurman uh, talk about how, how good it is to, to center down uh, and the fact that you know I need not compete against another candidate if it's a gift that is truly given to me. Uh, I wrestle with, um, <clears throat> as I think about vocation, that wonderful baccalaureate address that he did in 1981 to, uh, the, to the students at Spelman College uh, when he talked about the sound of the genuine. Uh, that too has been a, a resonant voice for me. I think about Thurman's travels. Um, some of you all may know that he was one of the first African-Americans to go over to India and swap stories with Gandhi uh, as he and his wife and two other delegates, African-Americans sat in Gandhi's little ashram and uh, talked about issues of peace and nonviolence and, and concluded with, uh, with a song, um, a, a Negro spiritual um, to, to, to end their time together. And, you know, Thurman has uh, not only influenced great civil rights leaders like, like Martin Luther King, who was one of his mentors, uh, uh, mentees, I'm sorry. And, you know, while King was at Boston University, you know, uh, Thurman was serving as the, the dean of Marsh Chapel. And Thurman uh, would preach sermons and uh, following those sermons, the young uh, King would go and they would sit and listen to the radio and listen to Jackie Robinson together. <laughs> and so um, Thurman has shown up not only in my life in, in high moments and, and very challenging ones. I'm learning more and more even through this text that I um, have been gifted to serve as editor uh, in um, how much Thurman has enriched the lives of other leaders. 
Um, and so in the book in which you mentioned, uh, Ed, um, you know, we hear stories from Marion Wright Edelman and uh, how her family opened Thanksgiving dinners with a reading from Thurman's work. And we hear from, you know, your own Barbara Brown Taylor, my dear uh, sister friend, um, and, and how Thurman helped to inform how she taught her classes uh, at Piedmont College. Folks like Parker Palmer and uh, Luke Powery, who's the Dean at Duke Chapel. Uh, these leaders have been enriched, influenced, um, um, intrigued into the spaces of wonder by this very unique man who I often say was born on another planet. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, Thurman is maybe sitting with us in one of those chairs that is seated yeah. behind you, Ed, and uh, in this space of wonder, he is here. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I, I mean, Greg, when you talk, period, my heart <laughs> swells and, uh, and it becomes more God-sized. And then when you add to your own being, I mean, you are anointed. When you add to that, your, your eloquent, poetic, lyric way of talking about Thurman, um, I am in a state of wonder and I'm, this is working. This is working. Yeah. So before, uh, uh, there's more to say uh, that will take us deeper. There are two or three other kind of touchstones I would appreciate your talking about. Um, one has to do back to the sound of the genuine speech. Yeah. Um, now, if people, when I left, when I left Pasadena to come here, they, it was a time to roast me. And one of the ways they roasted me was to develop a bacon bingo sermon card. Okay. And there were nine things that I mentioned too much. And, and, but I don't think I mentioned it too much. One of them was the sound of the genuine, because I love to invoke that speech. And one of the things I love to invoke about it is that he says, you access that not only by becoming quiet, but by going deeper than quiet into stillness. Yeah. And then Barbara Brown Taylor in her chapter in your book mm -hmm. quotes that poem where he says that the goal of life is to be moving stillness. So I just wanted you to maybe say a word about the stillness issue. And then that thing about, he says, you know, the goal is to come alive. And I just love for you to touch on that as well. Well, let's hear a few words from Thurman okay. uh, from that, that piece. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump around. I'll read uh, the, the, some of the opening paragraph and some of the closing. He says, there is in you something that waits and listens for the sound of the genuine in yourself. Nobody like you, Ed, has ever been born. And no one like you will ever be born again. You are the only one. <laughs> and if you miss the sound of the genuine in you, you will not be whole all the rest of your life because you will never be able to catch a scent on who you are. So the burden of what I have to say to you this afternoon in Thurman's word is what is your name? 
who are you and can you find a way to hear the sound of the genuine in yourself? There are so many noises going on inside of you. So many echoes of all sorts, so many internalizings of the rumble and the traffic, the confusions, the disorders by which our environment is peopled that I wonder if you can get still enough, not quiet enough, still enough to hear the rumbling up from your unique and essential idiom, the sound of the genuine in you. I don't know if you can, but this is our assignment. And so Ed, as you talk about the, 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 the differentiation between quietness and stillness, I will bring out another uh, Thurman anecdote. Um, Thurman was um, a student at Colgate uh, Theological Seminary. Um, and uh, in upstate New York, he was one of two African-American um, students admitted in that class. Um, and it, <laughs> legend tells us that uh, Thurman became uh, known for his skills as an orator and he would preach about the race issue or the race problem in the company of Ku Klux Klan members. Um, and so one day uh, Thurman was walking around uh, upstate New York. It was a busy day and uh, it was a, a traffic filled street. And somehow Thurman sensed within him that there was rushing water flowing in the midst of a busy street. <laughs> And he thought, you know, well, maybe I'm just imagining things. And a few weeks later, he went back to that same street and he was walking home and it was nighttime. And indeed there was rushing water from um, an outlet of a stream that was flowing beneath the surface of the cobblestone street but the traffic had to be ceased in order for him to hear the movement of the water beneath the surface. So I believe that there is a movement within each of us Ugh. that is constantly pushing us to new levels of awareness, mm. but we must get still enough, not quiet enough, because he was still walking but we must get still enough to yeah. hear that alternate rumbling of wonder and God speaking to us in ways that we might otherwise miss because there's so much traffic around us. Right. Uh, one, one last story. Uh, I love, my grandfather was a storyteller. I love it, love it. Keep going, keep going. I love your storytelling. My, my um, advisor at Princeton, his name was Robert Dykstra and uh, Dr. Dykstra, was a good guy, odd fellow, nonetheless, but good guy. And um, during finals time, you could imagine at Princeton that people would be running around in a frenzy, you know? Uh, I would put my headphones on and I would go to class ready to, I don't want anybody to talk to me. 
just so I could get my thoughts out of my head and, and move on. But Dykstra had this alternate approach, which I think is informing my leadership in what stillness looks like in this particular uh, situation uh, impacted by this pandemic and racial trauma. During uh, finals time, Dykstra would find him a seat on the quad and he would sit on the chapel steps as people were running around in the frenzy, Ed, and he would read a book. And so as there was all of this commotion and anxiety and traffic and noise, he would sit on the chapel steps and read a book. And I sat and watched him and students who were in that frenzy would say, wow, there's a pastoral care professor sitting there reading a book. And they would go sit quietly next to him somewhere on the steps and eat a sandwich or drink a cup of coffee or, or just look at the sun and take a deep breath. And then they would move back into the traffic of their daily round. And what Dykstra was teaching me is that part of the role of leaders in a space where people are inundated by frenzy is to alter pace, to help people be still, not quiet, but still enough that they might recognize the wonder of God, that they might hear the rushing water beneath the surface to give them the energy to move back into the traffic. And so as we talk about quietness and stillness and wonder, I invite you to think about if others are walking 75 steps per minute, what does it mean for you to walk 40? We're not asking you to stop, but alter your pace and see how that alters the pace of the people in your workplace, the people in your congregation, the people in your family. What does it mean to move with the rushing water? So let's breathe here a minute. Take that in sit with it before we go to other yeah albeit related questions yes indeed that's um that's full of wonder right there power 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 quiet stillness power so um you just reminded me of something that you wrote in the introduction to this book about Thurman. And it's a phrase I love. The release of forces into the ecosystem. And you're saying that in spiritual workers, this is page 11, spiritual workers have a unique disposition that releases forces into the ecosystem. You just alluded to the impact of someone who has their, to use a South Georgia image, the taproot of the pine tree in stillness. The impact of that on the on the ecosystem around them. It's like what we hear 
described about Francis of Assisi and the environment that was an, impacted by him. And you're saying, which I really believe because I've heard from other people who were at that Spellman um, talk that, uh, and, and another person, a friend of mine, friend mentor of mine who went to see Dr. Thurman once when he was living in San Francisco and he sat down and Dr. Thurman just was quiet and then said, who is Jim Turner? My friend's name is Jim Turner. So can you talk a little bit about this business of releasing forces or energies into the ecosystem around him and also your own experience of that in your life? It, um, the origins of that phrase for me comes from a um, sermon that uh, Thurman called those who walk with God. Mm. And he is referencing the role of the mystic as a social activist. Mm. And many might have um, exception <laughs> to such a, a, a connection of mystic and social activists. Exactly. Um, because, you know, there's a perception that the mystic lives in a desert or is a hermit or, you know, sits and reads book, it's books and is aloof and distant. Oh, not for Thurman. For Thurman, the mystic um, has a responsibility to name and address root issues. And to address those root issues with an attentiveness that there are systemic problems that are built upon foundational root issues. And if you can release what Thurman calls a terrible energy beneath the foundation of the systemic issue, everything above the foundation because the mystic channels a terrible energy that is uh, from the power of God and nothing according to Thurman can withstand the power of God but the power of God <laughs> and so if you release that terrible energy beneath the surface anything above it will crumble and so you know folks may say Greg you know you're doing this fearless dialogues work and you're inviting people into these conversations, but Greg, why don't you talk specifically about race? Why don't you talk specifically about class? You know, there's so much homophobia. Why don't you talk specific? Well, we create spaces for people to have those conversations. But what we also do is we prick the subconscious of people. Uh-huh such yeah. that once they begin to see, they cannot unsee what they have seen. 
Yes. Our philosophy is once you see, you cannot not see. And so we, we you know, my, my, my understanding of leadership, Ed, is built on this foundation. The primary role of the leader is to see that which others would overlook and to hear that which most people would ignore. And so what we are seeking to do is to release a terrible energy of empathy so that you can see the people in your midst that you might otherwise have overlooked. And so who is my neighbor is not just something that you quote on Sunday, but when you look in the eyes of that homeless person and you step over them, you realize I just stepped over somebody's aunt or somebody's uncle or somebody's grandmother or somebody's son. That is a human being made in the image of God. And when you help people to see people, that is terrible energy. And I think that is the role of the mystic. That is the energy that shifts the ecosystem, not only to see themselves in a more uh, um, life-giving, hope-engendering way, but to see the people around them as embodied images of God is radical work. And it shifts how we relate to each other. If I cannot look at that person who has a criminal record and who has a, a felony and I cannot see them just as a number, as a statistic. No, that's somebody's grandson. Amen. That's terrible energy. That is energy. Ed, you got me going on a Friday afternoon, man. I thought I was tired, bro. <laughs> I've been working hard this week. I didn't know I had this left. I'm going to sleep well tonight. Listen, my friend, I mean, this is the wonder, just to underscore the theme of Howard Thurman's life, yeah. his thinking, his eloquence, his lyricism, his profundity. It is power. Yes, indeed. And I have two more, two more questions <laughs> about Thurman, because I've got a lot of other questions about this community around Thurman, and then I want to talk about fearless dialogues as well yeah. however let me go back <coughs> pardon me so with brother thurman i want you to please tell your understanding of the story about how central it is for him for us to come alive mm. yeah um Ed, you're asking a, a question uh, referenced many times. I, I know Oprah Winfrey has used this in graduation speeches. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do that. That is a Thurman quote. Um, <clears throat> you know, Thurman was um, the beneficiary of a host of thoughtful mentors. Early in his life, these mentors were women. Uh, his grandmother, uh, who was a, um, a slave. Thurman was born in 1899, uh, was one of his most profound teachers. Likewise, uh, the great educator, Mary McLeod Bethune, was, you know, I got Dr. Bethune with me today. I didn't even know she was going to come up. She too was one of uh, Thurman's 
teachers and um, he was challenged early in life about how he might come alive. And I, I wanna share uh, a letter. This is the, um, the oldest surviving written piece in Thurman's um, corpus. And it's a letter that he wrote to Mordecai Wyatt Johnson when he was struggling to come alive. And Mordecai Wyatt Johnson would eventually become the president of, of Howard University, uh, where Thurman would take a position as uh, dean of that chapel. But um, Thurman had not you know, yet met Mordecai Wyatt Johnson. He was a young, scrappy 18-year-old with great ambitions. Uh, and he was writing to a hero of his, seeking support and guidance. He had never met Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, but he, he needed some, 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 some added support. And so as uh, you know, our friends are listening, I want you to think about who are you mentoring today? Mm. What yeah. is it doing to make them come alive, not recognizing that generations later, that person's impact could shift generations beyond all of us. Yeah. This is a letter that, that Thurman wrote at the age of 18 to Mordecai Wyatt Johnson. He says, my dear Reverend Johnson, listen while I tell you my soul. <laughs> He's 18 years old, Ed, and he said, listen while I tell you my soul. My home is Daytona, Florida, and I attend the Florida Baptist Academy of Jacksonville. I am 18 years old. Now listen as he tells his story of his family. My father has been dead 11 years. He died leaving three small children for my mother to rear. God bless her holy name. She did her best. She toiled morning, noon and night that we may be permitted to go to public school. During my last year in school, I ran a fish market. <laughs> he was in school and he ran a fish market full time. I studied my lessons at the market. I went to school to recite them and immediately thereafter, I reported to my job. I completed public school with a GPA of 99%. Uh, shucks. Um, receiving the first certificate of promotion given to the colored people of my county. During the early summer, I told my mother my desire to continue my education at a high school in Jacksonville. Her reply was to this, was this. Here it is, Ed. He said, son, this is what her mom, his mom said to him, son, you may go, but I can't do anything for you financially for I must care for your sister. So I told her, I. I did not expect anything from you, mama, but your prayers. The fall came, I had no money and scarcely sufficient clothing for winter, but my average GPA that year was 96%, the highest in the school. Now hear these closing words in that paragraph. He said to Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, I want to be a minister of the gospel. He's 18. And he said, I feel the needs of my people. 18, I see their distressing condition and I have offered myself upon the altar as a living sacrifice. 
He's 18 years old. And he said, I offer myself upon the altar as a living sacrifice in order that I may help those who are skinned and flung down. I'm scheduled to finish high school. And as you know, the war is on and young men are being snatched daily. I am patriotic. I'm willing to fight for democracy. But my friend, Reverend Johnson, my people need me. My people need me. What comes alive in us when we hear those words, my people need me. Who are your people? And what do they need? And what are you willing to sacrifice? Mm. When we answer those questions, we come alive. Mm, mm, mm. All right, let's breathe a minute. Let's breathe a minute. <laughs> Ed, man, what are you doing to me, man? Let's breathe a minute. Let's breathe a minute. Are we almost done? Yeah, but... <laughs> but we can't stop yet gregory i'm sorry we can't i can't stop yet because yeah. we haven't talked yet about there is an altar inside you and there's at that altar stands an angel now i'm not going to mess it up because i love to hear it from you if you'll take a breath and then just take us to that amazing image from Howard Thurman. Then we'll wrap it up. Well, Thurman lives in me as you all have heard these stories that, um, that continue to teach me from the water beneath the surface to the letter to um, his beloved mentor to this devotion called the Inward Sea. And Thurman shares with us, and I'd invite you to maybe close your eyes and envision this image. Dr. Thurman says this, in every person, in every person, in the young person, in the person who is behind bars, in the person who is on the other side of the wall seeking refuge, in the person in the boardroom with multiple commas behind their name, and in the person who is on the street with no roof over their head. In every person, there is an inward sea. And in that sea, there is an island. And on that island, there is an altar. And standing guard before that altar is an angel with a flaming sword. And nothing can get by that angel. To be placed upon that altar. On that island, in the midst of your inward sea. Unless it has the fluid area of your consent. Hear these words once more. In every person, there is an inward sea. 
And in that sea, there is an island. And on that island, there is an altar. And standing guard before that altar is an angel with a flaming sword. And nothing can get by that angel to be placed upon that altar that sits in that island in the midst of your inward sea, unless it has the fluid area of your consent. So my question is, Brother Ed, how many leaders never leave the sandy shores of the status quo? Yes. To traverse the rocky seas of their inner life in order to stumble upon the, the altar that is on that island and that is only protected by God. And on that altar, there is a unique gift that only in all of history we were given. How many of us never access that unique gift because of fear of what the sea may bring? The sea of doubt, the sea of naysayers, the sea of saying, well, that's never been done before. The sea of thinking out of the box, the sea of helping someone who may look different or sound different or love different or teach different or talk different than me. How many of us never access what God has uniquely put in us? And how might our world be different if we all got a little boat and left the shore? All right, we're going to breathe some more. <laughs> yeah. Sit with that, take that in. Mm. You know, I had, a, I had a flash that people can watch this on Sunday morning and then they can replay it all the way through Advent because mm. we have plumbed some spiritual wonder here. Yeah. That other one was supposed to be lost. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. I think the other one was supposed to be lost. Ed, I got one question for you. What question do you think we should be wrestling with now? For me, the question is the presence of the luminous divine in every human being and whether or not we truly believe that that is there in every human being. Mm. If I believe in the luminous divine, and to paraphrase 1 John 4, and do not love my neighbor, mm. I am a liar. If you say you love God and you do not love your neighbor, you're a liar. 
The question I want us to be wrestling with is understanding the interconnectivity of loving the divine presence of God in absolutely everyone yeah. and our love for God. And one can't be without the other. You can't have the vertical without the horizontal. You cannot have the loving God with all your being and your neighbor as that neighbor is actually yourself. That's the crux. And so for all of, all of humanity, we need to grapple with that. And Christians have to grapple with the, this is the religion of Jesus, not the religion about Jesus. Right. And the sandy shores that we have to leave, the sandy shores are the willingness to be changed mm -hmm. despite what our culture and our inherited gener generative narrative have taught us you know we have been deluded yeah uh, and you can you can translate that delusion from thomas merton's epiphany at fourth and walnut to James Baldwin saying it is it is it is a lie, to somebody else's uh, language that we've been taught slaveholder Christianity, on and on and on, it all boils down to whether or not we understand that the divine, the luminous divine, is in absolutely every human being, and whether we're going to act on that, not just give lip service to it. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I had this is a this is a this is a time to interview you not you interviewing me well you know Ed, you asked me about fearless dialogues if I talk the whole time it's a monologue so I have to ask you a question <laughs> I, in, my, in my heart of hearts I can't just sit and talk the whole time you know my my grandma would come pop me on my head so uh got it I'm, I'm with you about that I, and I'm a lifelong learner and I, I I always love to ask that question. What question do you think we should be wrestling with today? And so thank you for teaching me. <laughs> so my last two questions, I'm going to pose them both. And you weave your response. They're, they're, they're kind of different, but I know in your life, they're all, everything's uh, got this wholeness to it. Um, I do want to those who are listening to us this morning to hear about fearless dialogues. That is so powerful. And also, um, and, and I can't wait to hear your, how you relate the two. I was so intrigued with the fact that you started this book. I want to hold it up again. I want everybody to get this book and read it. You started this book by gathering these let's call them luminous people yeah. at the Haley farm to have a conversation. And out of it came all these brilliant chapters. Yeah. So we've a response to that about fearless dialogues and the circle of community of Howard Thurman at Haley farm. So speaking of wonder, the only thing I know about my call is to bring people together. Ooh. That's all God has given me. Bring people together. Greg, bring people together. Um, and I've wrestled with that all of my life. And fearless dialogues, what we seek to do is to create these unique spaces 
for unlikely partners, people who don't normally engage in conversation to, to have hard, heartfelt conversations with um, about taboo subjects. And so when I say unlikely partners, um, we just finished um, a number of sessions this week uh, with a large professional sports team um, ownership group. They have, they own three sports teams. And uh, we worked with their entire staff. And so what does it mean, Ed, to have a conversation about building community? And in one breakout room, there is the head coach of a team, the owner of all of the teams, a person who sells tickets, a security guard, <laughs> and an HR representative. Amazing. How often does the security guard, the ticket salesperson, and the HR representative sit in a room and talk strategy about the life of a community with the owner? And so at Fearless Dialogues, what we seek to do is to create these unique spaces that help people to see gifts in the people around them. Because our belief is that if you can't first see the gifts, as we've talked about uh, through a theological lens, the imago Dei, see the, the, the gift of God in each person, it's not possible to hear value in the stories. Therefore, if you can't see or hear the individuals, whatever change is created won't be sustainable. And so in the spirit of fearless dialogues, I had this dream of pulling together my teachers and my friends um, in a unique space that is um, dripping with ancestral love. The Alex Haley farm, Alex Haley of Roots, uh, bought a farm for his friends to gather where they could take off their mask and be outside of the spotlight of cameras. And so the Children's Defense Fund was kind enough to open this space for our group. And it was the first time that Parker Palmer met Luther Smith. And it was the, the first time that Barbara Brown Taylor and Ed Taylor would have an opportunity to meet, uh, you know, someone like Tyler Sit. And so we are seated around these tables, sharing these meals. And Thurman was present, but Thurman was secondary. <laughs> the primary role was for us to see the gifts in each other and for us to hear our stories so that we could produce a document that would change lives. But we had to see first right. and we had to hear second. And, um, you know, one, one last thing, and uh, I know Barbara's going to join you in conversation. I love that lady. She's, she's, uh, I call her Sister Yoda. <laughs> Dear, dear friend, my kids know her as the farmer. <laughs> Barbara said to me uh, after our third gathering for Anchored in the Current, Greg, every time I get to, together with these folks, I cannot stop weeping. And um, she's not alone 
in the sense that whenever we gathered, it felt like heaven. I really felt like I was walking around the clouds and the, the heavenly gates were nearby. And um, it's my greatest hope that this document that was produced out of our time on the farm, in it people can feel a small piece of heaven. Greg Ellison, today you and I have felt a piece of heaven. Indeed, Ed. Indeed. It's been full of wonder. My heart is so full of gratitude to you and to Howard Thurman and to your journey and, and to your friendship. Yeah. So thank you very much for being with us at St. Luke's this day. May God bless each and every one of you and may the peace of the eternal, as Thurman would say, be in your every step. Thank you, Greg Allison. Thank you, Ed Bacon. Thank you. And thank you all for watching and being with us. Have a blessed Advent and a glorious Christmas. Thank you. Bye-bye.